On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we will be tackling our first ever off-season podcast where we'll recap the Super Bowl in painstaking detail. We'll talk about Rufus's days, first days at Las Vegas Sports Consultant, and we'll really be diving into the ideas of fraud detection or you know match fixing and all that kind of stuff with an eye towards understanding the power of analytics uh, to predict the future. We'll even talk a little bit about some nerdy stuff about causation versus correlation. As always, the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app. It's the best app to track all of your sports bets and to get really good sports betting content. So with that, let's start the process. Welcome to the first ever off-season podcast of the Bet the Process podcast. Uh, I'm Jeff Ma with Rufus Peabody, Peabody joined from uh, Cape Town, South Africa. Is that correct? That is correct. It looks beautiful there. It is beautiful there. <laughs> and they, they're not scheduled to run out of water until after I leave. <laughs> That's good. California is scheduled to um, run out of water after I leave probably too, which means after I die, <laughs> um, after I leave this earth. So um, for the off season, we've been playing around with some different um, segment ideas and some different ways. The problem is that Rufus is not a big basketball uh, handicapper, neither college nor NBA. Uh, and since he's the brains behind this podcast, we'll probably won't talk a ton about basketball um, but we uh, will dive into maybe baseball at some point, and uh, we'll probably look at a lot of off-season topics. So we're, we're playing around with a bunch of different segment ideas. But before we get into those, we'd love to get your feedback on Twitter on those. But before we get into those, let's recap the Wait, Super Bowl. Sorry, Wait, before ahead. we even get into there, I have to call you out. I'm definitely not the brains of the podcast. You're the guy that's Mr. 21 movie is made after, you know, you're the main character in that. And I happen to know you you do stuff with basketball. And so maybe this will be a chance for me to sort of set you up for some some discussion points. Yeah, I mean, we can talk. We can certainly talk about um, both college and NBA. If there's um, banter to be had on those, um, I'm happy. We're happy to chat about those. Um, but again, let's start by going back and looking at the Super Bowl. Obviously, we're now about two weeks removed from it. Um, hopefully the um, sting of the Super Bowl for me being a Patriots fan and having been on the Patriots uh, money line, um, actually not into the Patriots money line. I took the Patriots back before the playoffs, went on this wonderful podcast, the Bet the Process podcast. We identified that I think it was like plus 230 was good value on them at the time. I think you had them at plus 180 or plus 170. Um, and so there was a little bit of value. So, so that was the ticket that I was holding on to. And then I bet a little bit on, more on them in game. Um, so ended up losing for sure on the Super Bowl. Um, how did things net out for you? Uh, it wasn't a good Super Bowl for me either. I think with all the props and everything, I, I came out a little worse than negative 10%, which, you know, given how diversified I am in props, that's, you know, I think it's the second worst Super Bowl I've had. 
Uh, but yeah, yeah, Patriots were a loss for me as well. I had more Eagles futures than anything than Pats futures going into the game. But given the Pats money line prices in Las Vegas, I totally um, I hedged out of that completely and actually had you know I, I had a significant rooting interest in the Patriots winning. However, at halftime, I did add some Eagles. Pl- Wait, what were the Eagles up at, at the half? I think I remember. Eagles were up I think I got, ten at the half. Yeah. Okay. So. I got Eagles plus seven second half, which was which was nice. So, but you yeah, know, that, still that second half line actually became super juiced. It was like plus seven minus one thirty is well. What I was in seeing. Vegas, you got some plus seven minus one tens and minus one twenties out there. So, but and, and was that, that number? Early on or did, did that did it stay that way in Vegas? Um, I don't know. I actually placed my bets and then went to the 10th hole of my buddies of, of the golf course my buddy lives on and with like six other drunken idiots and we decided to play the little par three hole. Um, yeah. So you didn't even Just, watch the second half? No, I did. You know how long Super Bowl halftime is. <laughs> it is long. But 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 I definitely I, I got like, you know, I realized I got down like more than I had anticipated on the second half anyway. And then I was like, OK, screw it. But did you did you bet that second half under? I actually thought, given the the game total of I think what forty eight forty eight and a half, um, and the fact that that game the second half total came out at like twenty eight, I was kind of like there has to be value in the under, and I didn't see my my model didn't really show any value there. Yeah, no, we had we had this we'd had the second half under, and it was sort of begrudging because I had actually taken the first uh, the game over, sorry, primarily because of sort of this whole notion that. I had uh, yeah. um, really adopted that Bill Barnwell had talked about where um, the way to beat the Eagles was with a fast pace with no huddle because then they can't sub out all their defensive linemen and keep them fresh. So I felt like the Patriots are going to play um, a relatively high pace. And I, the Patriots did catch them early on with ten men on, with uh, 12 men on the field. And so I wonder if that did influence their subbing going forward because the Patriots didn't play that high a pace um but um but yeah i had some over so when when the when our model came out and said that the the under was value in the second half um i wasn't super happy about that but i mean it was 28 points it's it's crazy with the with the total that was lined what the original total was i i agree and i was very surprised but i guess uh, i'm kind of in a way it sort of validates the fact that there well it doesn't validate it's one game but it does show that that my model did identify things in the first half that were predictive for scoring in the second half, controlling for the total. So I made the meaning under like meaning like no one punted. <laughs> yeah. So so I made under twenty eight. By the way, it wasn't it wasn't twenty eight even, was it? It was like twenty eight. No, no, it was twenty. It was twenty eight. Oh no, actually, it went down to twenty seven and a half. You're right. You're right. It opened twenty eight and then went down to twenty seven and a half. I don't think there was actually any true twenty eights available. I would have been on under twenty eight, but I made under twenty seven and a half minus one fifteen on the under, so that wasn't enough value to play. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I made that I made that Philly plus seven like minus one eighty, which is like an insane value, and it just goes to show how much um, the public was really or people you know expecting uh, the Patriots to come back. Yeah. I was expecting that also as a fan. I, I was and, I was hoping for some punts though. <laughs> punts would have been nice. I almost no got completely punts. screwed. I almost there got was middled. one punt in that entire game. One punt. Yeah, that's it's, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean that's if you told me there was a Super Bowl where there were what like seventy? What was it? Forty-one to 33, 74 points. Is that right? Scored, um, and there was a total of one punt. 
I, I would have told you I would have been a much bigger than a negative 10% uh, on the game, just given props tend to be primarily betting on unders. But this year, more than any other year, I actually had some bets on overs. It was, it was, yeah, it was. So it wasn't a little as different. bad. I mean, like you texted me afterwards, like "fuck my life." So <laughs> no, and then I thought that was things were a lot worse than than negative ten percent down. Well, it's ten percent negative ten percent over. Like, there's a lot of volume though. And, and since your bankroll is two hundred million, that's a lot of money. Shit, yeah. We could probably figure out how much money that is. Ten percent of two hundred million. I don't know. Sounds hard. Did this so game much. have any sort of influence on your Super Bowl handicapping going forward? That's an interesting question because it does seem like and teams do pull out more gadget things. But, but to me, I wonder why teams don't do that in do or die situations anyway. Like if you look at the Eagles, the, the pass to Nick Foles, right? And then the Patriots throwing a pass to Tom Brady. Like these are plays that obviously are in the playbook to be run once. But... And, and you're right. Neither of these, none of these, neither of these two teams had like sort of do or die situations. Well, besides you know the previous playoff games where they didn't employ anything like that. Well, actually, the Patriots did have a Danny Amendola pass. So, um, and it, the but, Patriots but, did a wonder, flicker. The Patriots yeah, tend to do. True. I think the thing that's more interesting to think about is is this going to be like a paradigm shift? where people start to understand and go for it more on fourth down. Like, so this is like, you know, this is two teams. I wonder if the fact that this was two teams that have a bit more optimal decision-making when it comes to fourth downs, which I think, you know, Mm -hmm. over, I'm guessing over the course of a game, it's probably not that much of a, a point gain or a win probability gain because it's just one game and there's probably only one or two decisions. Um, but you know, like the, the Eagles have certainly been getting a lot of press for being an analytics driven team and the fourth downs that they went for, uh, certainly analytics would back up those decisions. And those were in many ways, the reason that they won that game. I mean, if they don't go for it on fourth down at the end of the half, um, they get a field goal there and they don't go for it on fourth down in their own territory, you know, I I don't think they win that game. So I, I do think those decisions, um, obviously, they making those decisions, they still could have lost the game because if it didn't work, it, it probably would have been more catastrophic. But at least making the decisions to go for it gave them the opportunity to win that game, whereas I, I don't think they would have had the opportunity to win that game if they if they didn't go for those. You know, I, I can't necessarily speak to that, but I do think that they're down. Well, what do you down, mean you can't speak to it? You don't have well, an opinion well, on it? No, the, no, that they would, wouldn't have a chance to win the game. I think I they still would have. I don't mean that they wouldn't have a chance. They would have I mean had they, a chance. Well, maybe I do. I mean, I, I think that I, that's... I think the game would, yeah. but, but here, wait, what I, what I did want to speak to was the fact that uh, I bet against uh, the... I actually bet against both teams at good prices uh, converting a fourth down, and I bet against there being a two-point conversion attempt and a successful two-point conversion in both. I, I thought that, um, I guess, my model... I look, you know, you have a whole distribution of how often teams go for it on fourth down. And a lot of that is, a lot of that is, there, there's a lot of noise too. A lot of it's situational. Like the Patriots going for it on fourth down, on fourth and whatever at the end of the game, right? They, every team in the league would have gone for it there, right? But, they but then you also have earlier on fourth down, right? They true. went for it on yeah. like in a situation where a lot of teams would have probably punted. Some teams would have tried a long field goal. Right. I guess what I'm saying though is that it, I guess in the past there hasn't been nearly as much of a, a spread in in t- terms of how much 
how often teams actually um, fundamentally do go for it. You know what I mean? Like most of it was situational dependent because you didn't have a lot of teams that were really being more aggressive or significantly more aggressive or significantly less aggressive than sort of the mean. And so the fact that the Eagles had gone for it a lot on fourth down this season um, still regressed pretty hard to the mean in terms of my projections, meaning that I thought that um, I thought that a lot of that was sort of noisier or my, my model picked that up. I didn't actually like. Does your model actually look at the, does it look at the raw number or does it look at the situations and whether they went for it or not? For the prop stuff, it's honestly just looking at the raw number there. It's not so that's um, that there lies right. the, the mistake, correct? I, I completely agree. The question is, is it worth the time to to change to go into detail for it, given that I'm only using it once a year? And you're getting like five hundred dollars down on prop bets. Well, more than five hundred dollars. Well, no, maybe. but I mean, like my my point is that you're not even getting a lot of money down on those in the grand well, scheme. Like if you could have gotten uh, like in Vegas, I mean, I was able to get you know like. You have places that take two thousand per. So like all in, all in I mean, on I had, all I had a significant down bets. Are you getting more than fifty thousand dollars down? No, I'm not getting more than fifty thousand, but I probably had a good. I probably had close to twenty thousand against fourth downs. Right, but again, like, is it worth the analysis of their and you know because like again like the when you look back at that game the decisions Belichick had had a decision early on that you know, no one is really even talking about where he decided to kick a field goal and he probably should have gone for it. Right. They, it was, it was a fourth down. It was like fourth and one inside the 10 yard line. Um, there's no the analytics that would say that that's a smart, what's that? The missed field goal. Yeah. The missed field. I mean, obviously it, it, it even looks worse. Right, right. They missed the, 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 field Patriots, goal, but... the Patriots are a team that, that generally are not that different from the mean in terms of their propensity to go for it for fourth down, like on fourth down. I mean, I think that Belichick is a great coach and all that. And people talk about how he's innovative in all these ways, but when it comes to the fourth down decision-making, he's still like pretty, pretty well, normal. I, I feel like he eschews punting for, for, for going for it, but not often field goals for going for it. That's true. If that makes sense. And he's had a lot of good kickers throughout the years. Well, two, Vinatieri and Gaskowski. But, I mean, if you think about, again, like if you go back to that game, the Patriots had um, two, their first two possessions ended inside the Eagles' you know, 10-yard line, and they had three points to show for it. Yeah. And, and like, you know, everyone will focus on the end of the game, but that therein lied the real problem with that game is they got behind because – and they moved the ball very successfully, but had nothing to show for it um, except for one field goal, which is just not something you can do against a team that is um, playing much more optimal. And so, you know, I do think that uh, Belichick got out coached in that game from a decision-making standpoint, from a very simple decision-making standpoint, he got out coached. But, but I do think that, that the actual difference in expected points there due to the, you know, the kicking the field goals versus going for it there is, is, still fairly minor in the scheme of things. Uh, I don't think that that, that had a, a huge amount to do with the, the game outcome in terms of, I mean, well, obviously the missed field goal did for sure, but, well, but that decision right there, I wouldn't say that decision, um, at least the process behind it would have swayed the outcome of the game. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree with you because I feel like this game was very even. I mean, like, what are your, what are your game grades come out on this game? I, I haven't run it. Okay. Um, um, my, I have not. Sorry. My guess is the fundamentals between these two teams was pretty close to even. 
And yeah, the and the, Patri- rate, the Patriots were better in yards per play and all that. Yeah, but you're going to tell me that they were coming back the whole time, so I didn't want to bring that up. I mean, they weren't down big. They were down but two scores a bulk okay, of the game. But, but yeah. True, my, that's a good point, especially my, the my, last drive. My point to you, okay, let's just talk about this for one second. In a game that's that close, decision-making is a, a big thing in terms of, like, the margin. I mean, what it, we, can, we can probably calculate that difference, and probably hopefully some people have, okay. of the, going forward on that the difference in expected value and going for that fourth and, you know, one inside the five-yard line and kicking the field goal, right? That's the classic. But, still, but here's the point. Randomness is still going to be the biggest, like, determinant of, of – I, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, when but, like, comes, you can't control like, randomness. Wait, wait, you control expected, control okay, right, right. But, but the, expect, the difference in expected points, on I don't know, was it like fourth and two? Like, with the I, I understand what line? you're saying. You're I essentially think, saying, like, the, those it's, it's gonna decisions be less on than the like, margin weren't what dictated that game. It was randomness that dictated it, whether... It was the know, missed the field goal randomness. Were, what's that? It was, it was the missed field goal randomness, the bad snap and all that, more so than the fact that they kicked the field goal rather than went for it, because I, I, I would guess the difference between the expected points like going forward and kicking the field goal was like maybe what, like a 10th of a point. No, I bet it was Two more tenths than that. of a point. I bet it was more than a 10th of a point. I mean, it's definitely less than a point. Definitely less than half a point. I would say I, I could be completely wrong, but I right, doubt well, it. We have homework to figure this out before the next podcast because, or someone on Twitter can maybe I mean, it's not hard. It's not hard to look up. You can right. find, I know. Yeah. So we should have done this before, but, but in the same, t- like, by the same token, when the Eagles went forward on fourth down there, a lot of, I mean, what you don't consider there is the time aspect. The fact that, you know, the, the part of the reason it's so good to go for it deep in opponent's territory is because if you don't convert it, the opponent has awful field position. But that was basically going to be negated because um, you're going into halftime, right? Well, I, I actually said this. I was at a Super Bowl party and I said this at the time. I'm like, they probably shouldn't go for this here because of the fact that like exactly what you're saying. So, so what Rufus is saying is the reason that you should go for it is because you are giving the other team worse field position than they would if you kicked a field goal and then kicked off afterwards and they get it at the 25 yard line. So the difference between say them getting it at the, their own one yard line versus the 25, that's worth roughly probably two points in, in terms of like the idea of expected points. So, but I agree and disagree because I do think that the Patriots will try to score if they get a kickoff, whereas I don't think they will try to score if they get the ball at their own one-yard line. Does that make sense? True. No, it does. But, I mean, how much time was left on the clock at that point anyway? It was like 40-some seconds. Okay. I mean, so still, like – on. I, and the I think, Patriots almost, I think the that, Patriots that did decision, almost get into field goal range if Brady true. does not take a basically Brady had a chance to throw the ball away. Instead, he tried to run to the sideline. He did not get there. He got tackled, and that ended up being the reason that they didn't really have a chance to get into field goal range. Okay, but I, I think you're grading these moves largely based on the outcome, like the fact that the Eagles' two fourth down attempts were successful, um, and and like on the if you look at the actual expectation for the decisions. Like you might let's let's say the Eagles, based on fourth down decision making, maybe the Eagles outcoached the Patriots by a total of one and a half points or something like that. I would say less probably. Um, and so 
maybe one point. I guess, um, I guess what I'm saying is like um, those those plays. Okay, and this this is something that like I talked to Daryl Morey once about. And if you think about the reason that like the the Warriors are or, are or should be worried about the Rockets is because they shoot a lot of three pointers, which creates a lot of variance, and they want variance to beat the Warriors. Maybe not as much this year, where they may be almost as good as the Warriors, but generally those three pointers create variance, which gives them an opportunity to beat a team that is better than them. I still contend that the Patriots were better than the Eagles and creating those fourth down decisions creates more variance, slightly positive expected value, but more variance to potentially win a game that will be difficult for them to win. I agree. And so, so does that change how you judge Bill Belichick's decision to kick the field goal in the first quarter? So you're quarter saying that he's trying yards? to reduce variance. Yes. I think that's a, I think that's, being the better team, I think the, the argument fair, cuts both ways. That's a fair point. I think it, I think, it lies in this thing that neither of us were both of us were too lazy to look up which is essentially like what is the difference in expected value um in that decision or expected points in that decision um if it is on the margin then i agree with you if it's if it's bigger than the margin then i disagree with you (laughs) okay that's fair by the way the nick Foles touchdown pass occurred with 34 seconds left in the second quarter so i think it's fair to say that using just your general chart that says, you know, based on down and distance, um, whether, you know, what the expected points for a field goal versus. So you think that was, um, so you think that ended up being a bad decision? I think it was close to a coin flip. I, I think those two were, I mean, but as you said, it, it increases variance. Although at the time the Eagles were up by three points anyway. So maybe you don't want to increase variance. Well, I still the, think the they point want is to he, did, he decided I mean, like, to, yeah. Anyways, what happened happened okay. though. Okay, I think when we we can move on from the Super Bowl. What do you think? No, that's one more question though, because someone on Twitter asked this and they wanted to sort of like analyze or or go through or understand your Eagles futures journey. So, you know, in week three or whatever, the Eagles are twenty-five to one on Bet the Process podcast. We say there's a lot of value on the Eagles. Um, you are able to get down a position on the Eagles. How do you then manage that going forward? Is there is there you know how is there like a portfolio of all your futures and you look at them in total, or do you just take each bet and you're sort of like separately understanding uh, the value of each bet as you put them on? Um, it's honestly you know years ago I probably would have like looked at Kelly Criterion and said okay I only want this much exposure, but now it's more like I feel like I'm. Not really going to. I'm, I'm underexposed relative to my bankroll, regardless. So you're underbetting your so. bankroll now, so there's less of a well, because, reason because there's limits. Up. Yes, I mean because yeah. there's limits. I can't. I can't say, oh, I want to bet five thousand dollars. No, no, no I, under, I understand. I understand. I, I'm. I'm just trying to simplify it. Yes, you're correct. And so, as I you mean, think but, through this, and as you go through the playoffs and things like that, basically, when you got to the Super Bowl with the Eagles in this situation, you at that point felt like, did you look for value along the way against the Eagles? Yeah, I will tend to. I mean, I will, you know, if I can find like, so I, so I bought out and, and, and completely with the Patriots money line Super Bowl because, uh, because that was on its own positive expected value, just relative to the point spread. The money line was a great value. Um, But also because, I liked the Patriots side there as well, um, and it, which made the made it even better. And so, 
but, but let's say let's say I showed like part a part of the value on the Patriots money line. Part of the value on the Patriots money line was simply like that whole idea that we're talking about of the Super Bowl middle, and then exactly. part was just the fundamental fundamentals of the Patriots. Yes, exactly. And so, um, but but let's say let's say it was just I, I, based on the point spread, and you know I saw that there should be like one cent of value on the Patriots money line. Yeah, I, I would buy out a good amount there because I'm in, you know I'm I'm not decreasing my expected value of my portfolio at all, it, but at the same time I'm reducing the variance. And we we we've, we've just we discussed this in previous weeks. I remember. Yeah, no, it's it makes sense. Okay, let's move on from the Super Bowl. Let's talk a little bit about the offseason. So we want to start having some guests on. Uh, we've thrown around some names, some ideas. Would love to hear from you some names and ideas. You and I haven't talked about like specifically who we want to have on. Are there people that interest you, Rufus? For sure, for sure. Any like, specific? Uh, am I supposed to throw out? I'm not going to throw out names right now because then if they decline my invitation, I no. Um, I, I right. can't well, think we, of any We want to hear from you guys who you'd like to have on. Um, we're thinking about maybe three t- categories of people. One are other gamblers that we respect. Um, the next would be sort of analytically driven sports people, um, either from teams or just in the me- in the media. And then finally, our analytics people from outside of sports that we can sort of talk through their process. So we'd love to get your point of view on some of these people. And hopefully our next podcast in a couple of weeks, we'll have our first ever guest, which would be exciting. So let's now move into a segment we're going to call, how did we get here? And Rufus and I obviously have somewhat interesting backgrounds. Um, And so I think we both have stories from our past. We've kind of talked a little bit about this on podcasts before, but Rufus, I want to ask you a little bit about how you got into this business um, and a little bit about your time at Las Vegas Sports Consultant. So first of all, Explain really briefly a little bit about how you ended up getting into sports betting in general. Well, I've always been into the number side of sports growing up. I think I learned to read a baseball box score before I actually learned to read. And so that, that was always sort of a big part of me, like my fundamental being, I guess. And, and when I read an article on ESPN.com by Gene Wojciechowski, who, by the way, I met a year ago and told him that he's responsible for me being a professional gambler. He had a really interesting look in his face when when... Anyway, um, I read this article about um, he, I guess he was embedded in the LVSC offices during Selection Sunday uh, one year. I guess this would have been 2005 or 2006. And he uh, and I and I was like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing. Like, it seems like a dream job working at this company that sets the odds. And and, and so I. I uh, looked up the company. I called and tried to talk my way into an internship. I was, well, they told me to call back in like two weeks on Sunday at three o'clock and this guy might be able to talk to me. And then, you know, the same thing happened again and again and again. But finally, I managed to connect with Kenny White, who is the, um, who was, who ran things there. He was a part owner at the time. Um, And, um, and yeah, the head honcho. The Las Vegas and, sports consultants were like basically explain to me what they were. So they were they, they were the largest and most influential odds making company. I'm putting that in air quotes in the world, but lo- part of that is because they um, so the, so they set lines um, or recommended opening point spreads and money lines and all that stuff and futures lines for the Nevada sports books, the legal Nevada sports books, 
which so used to come out. all of the sports books like paid them as consultants to essentially like help them set their opening lines. They had 90% of the clientele. This other guy, Pete Corner, had 10%, but who was also a former LVSC um, odds maker. But there's a law in Nevada that says that every, or there used to be a law, I don't know if it still exists, that every sports book had to employ a licensed, like, you know, odds maker odds making company, a sport, you know, consulting service or something like that. And so, um, and so LVSC, um, was sort of like, was the chief one of those. How it, it also, it makes sense if you think about it from a sports books perspective, like rather than hiring their own team of statisticians and odds makers, each of them, you know, just to set an opening number, um, or, or waiting for another book to come out and then copy, like, well, why don't they all just pool basically, pool together and hire this one company because all, all they're really doing is setting an opening number anyway. At that point, like by that, I mean the, the initial, um, you, know, you know, the initial point spread that comes out, the first book posts, and then um, it gets bed into place. But, but that first sports book to, to come up with that number is kind of taking a risk because it could be a bad number and they could get hit by a lot of sharp action. So uh, LVSC was kind of there to try to like, you know, eliminate um, that sort of potential um, liability by creating good numbers. How mathematical or analytical were they? Not nearly as mathematical as I expected. They're really smart people who have, who I would say understand numbers very well, but they aren't statisticians or anything like that by trade. So when I was out there doing an internship before my senior year of college, the Tim Donahue scandal broke out. Uh, the NBA, I'm sure everybody listening knows who Tim Donahue is, the NBA referee that bet on games he officiated. And so they actually had me break down the line moves in the games he officiated and try to sort of look for any sort of descript, like any anomalies, any regular betting patterns. And, and I actually found some, and, and that was probably the reason I got hired full time because I was able to bring in some, some work for, for uh, LVSC in terms of um, being like a watchdog for, for sports leagues like the NBA. What was the analysis but, that, what analysis did you do to try to figure that out? Dude, it was, it was pretty basic to be quite honest at this point. Like it, you know, I looked at, um, I don't even remember how I went about doing it, but cause I, here's the thing. I didn't have, um, I didn't have other games to compare it to. I couldn't say, Oh, well, and these other, like, I don't know, you know, I, I didn't know the baseline, like number of line moves for a particular game or anything like that. But I kind of tried to find a part of it was finding a narrative sort of to say, okay, well, let's say he was betting on these games. He officiated like, what would the trail look like? Where would he be betting? Where would the, you know, would there be sharps that didn't know the fix was in that would sort of try to hammer it back. And so generally what we found were like high volume games. uh, Well, or games with like a lot of line moves shortly before post time um, towards the over, but it would get bet back and then bet again. And so the, the sort of theory was that these, like New York bookies were trying to lay off their action offshore and, and kind of flooding the market with these overs um, because, you know, Tim Donahue was, um, the, the theory was he was influencing the game by calling more fouls and trying to allow more points to be scored. Because if you're a referee and trying to try to influence, um, influence a betting result, the easiest way to do it is, is by, uh, by calling either more or fewer fouls on both sides, by, you know, by, by affecting the number of points scored rather than, which team scoring the points? Did you actually analyze the games themselves to see if there were more fouls called? Um, I, I remember we did look at that. 
I don't think we had numbers per official, but we could see with the crews. I, I don't remember the result of that, but I do remember there was some really significant trend where, um, and, and this kind of, you know, I, I feel like a little bit of sort of um, data, th there was definitely data mining taking place. I, the process was not the world's best, but uh, there, well, there you was were like, a junior in college. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I was very little at that time. About, I mean, like, I'm not doing this in a way, like, I'm not asking these questions to like belittle your methods. I'm just, Oh no, my I methods one, were kind of, one of the things that's very, it's, you know, like when I talked to Nate Silver once, like I, I interviewed him right after he'd gotten the first uh, batch of notoriety uh, from his political stuff. And obviously I know Nate a long time. I known him from back in the days when he was at baseball prospectus and I was like listening to him talk about what he did for politics. And I was just like, dude, that sounds so simple. Like that sounds way more simple than what you did when you were doing, you know, like Pakoda projections for baseball players. And he's like, yeah, it's, it was totally simple. And, you know, and, and so sometimes the most simple things like because this market was really unsophisticated at the time, doing some pretty simple methods would allow you to find some pretty interesting patterns. For sure. Although with this, I think part of it, yes, my process kind of sucked, but also I wasn't dealing, I didn't really have the data to actually say, to like compare the line moves in Donahue's games to some baseline of over, like normal line moves in all games. You know what I mean? Even how so, analytically driven sports betting is now, and specifically NBA betting, where I know like a lot of this stuff is well analyzed. Do you think that um, like a Donahue thing, like someone would sniff that out like very quickly? You know, I, I'm not entirely sure. To be quite honest, I, I think it's more likely that they would sniff it out now than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, whatever it was 10 years ago, I guess. Well, I know but, that like I, I know people specifically that bet tennis big. And they actually like have people working on like detection of which games or might be rigged, right? But I was going to mention, you know, what's that? No, I was going to mention tennis is the sport where you sort of have, I mean, tennis is the sport where I, I think people are looking the most closely at it because there have been a lot of instances of, of corruption there, especially in the women's tennis game. Right. And, and I've heard from people like I know someone that bets tennis who um, told me years ago when I was looking at developing a tennis model, he said, like, if the line moves really hard against you and keeps moving, you just get off that game because the fix is in. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and here's the thing, though. Match fixing and things like that for a professional gambler like myself um, is not good. It's not beneficial to me. It's not beneficial to the sports books. The only uh, the only people it's beneficial to are the people that are in on it and the athletes, I guess, that are getting paid from that. So I think it's in the best interests of leagues, of sports books, of watchdog organizations, all like it's in the best interest of virtually everybody to make sure this stuff um, is, is sort of weeded out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it, it goes without saying that there is um, a lot of incentive by everyone involved to when, when this becomes legal to have a lot of, what I would call sort of checks and balances and transparency around the data. I mean, that the, the key thing to this, right, is like ultimately when you go back to the Donahue thing and not, not to like harp on dead horse that I always talk about, but the, the key to the Donahue thing, the struggles with it, at least at that time, is not having good data to do real analysis. So if you have data 
that the league is either furnishing or that there's a good third party that's furnishing, it's not going to take you very long to look for anomalies. Like the way that these things go by is not by not having real data. You have offshore books where things are being bet. So you don't know where that money is. You have, you know, generally bad data being kept by the, by the, you know, by everyone in this. So hopefully if sports again, becomes legal, there'll be better data at that point. Don't get run over there, by the way. It sounds like there's some, yeah. Someone's is that, that's not me. You. That's you. Is that me? No way. Yeah. I've been sitting in a small uh, conference room at Twitter. Okay. There's no cars near <laughs> me. This mic is really good. So, so here's my question. I want to make a comparison though. So let's, let's, you know, there was another school shooting a few days ago in Florida and they, I guess I've read a few stories about it and they said that um, after the fact, I mean, this is all after the fact analysis that, that there were a lot of red flags for this guy, a lot of warning signs and that um, he'd posted some things on social media that, that made it seem like this would not be completely far fetched for, for this guy to, to shoot up a school or something. And so, the question is, can we, perv- are we able to detect it? Bef- well, are we able to prevent it in any way? Like, does the fact that, does good enforcement work in a preventative way in, in, in terms of match fixing? I mean, or are we going to be able to sort of sniff this out in real time? Or is it going to be after the fact? We're like, oh, well, now we can see, sort of see the real pat- see the patterns in the data. Um. So I think an, the whole point, the whole point is to catch analogy. this up before it happens, right? I think that's what we all want. Right. So it's an interesting analogy, and it actually dovetails well into sort of this idea for this last segment, right? Which is, and I, I know we didn't talk, we have we can talk a lot more about LVSC in a future podcast, but it was great that we got so much out of that. Um, but like the idea of of predictive models to predict the future. Um, and, and like the idea of sort of causation versus correlation, like essentially what you're saying is that, yes, we look back and we can look at all these correlations and and specifically in the case of this Florida guy, there's certainly all these correlations that people are coming, which are, are sort of fitting this narrative, but how do you create like a predictive model or a predictive process that prevents, um, these types of things from happening? And at, at, at the core, that's like this causation versus correlation, right? Because people that are, you know, not to get too political, but people that believe in gun control at some level believe that the, the root cause of something like this is the accessibility to guns. That's the causal thing. Like we have a, a society which allows people to get guns. Um, and so that's the cause. And so if you want to prevent it, you, you take the cause away, um, you know, the, the, there is a lot of debate about whether that's actually true in terms of whether, you know, increasing gun control would have prevented him in this specific case. I don't want to get into that, but I do think that this idea of, of correlation after the fact is a dangerous thing to think about, which is, I think, I think kind of what you're getting at, which is like, it's very easy after the fact to look at correlation um, and not know if there's causation. And then, at the core, like, okay, let's, let's take this away from the, the social notion and let's put it back into sports. Um, This is really like at the core of building a really good model for sports. And one of the reasons that I think that sports is so challenging, sports betting is so challenging to beat because ultimately you don't know whether a lot of the factors that are in a model, a predictive model are causal versus correlated. You, you really only know they're correlated because it's hard to determine causality without doing real experimentation. 
And it's hard to do experimentation in the world of, of, of sports, right? Because you can't tell one team to do X one time and do B another time. They're just not going to do it. Right. No, I completely agree. But it's, and it's I, fascinating I think, I think, to think about. Like this, you know, the last segment that I wanted to talk about was was called Predicting the Future. And it was about, you know, we would come up with sort of these whole, uh, you know, wh- whether it was, uh, you know, social or or pop culture or sports related things that questions where we would try to basically predict the future or, you know, think about building models or even talk about people that have built models to predict the future. Um, and in this case, like the, the predict the future that I want to talk about a little bit is just legalization of sports betting, which um, next week is the Sloan sports conference, which I'm very sad that you're not going to be attending yeah. um, given the fact that, you know, that's where we met many, many years ago. And um, that's that where, where we, we usually met? get the chance to actually hang out. What? I guess it is where we met. Yeah. So how many years ago was that? Probably four years five, ago. Five, five years maybe four. I think four. Or five but but wait, years before ago. before we before we transition, I, like to your point about, um, I guess, sort of the consequences of um, or, or creating narratives around this one data point after the fact. Like we have, what is the cause of a false positive? Do you know what I mean? Like let's say that there was there's all these other people that have social media posts that, you know, if something happened, if they shot up a school we could look back and say, oh yeah, this, you know, we should have known, right? There's probably thousands of people like that, right? So, so in, in transitioning that or sort of the corollary for, I guess, w- trying to weed out match fixing in sports is, you know, the data could show that there's anomalous batting patterns in, you know, some games and most of those are going to be, a lot of that it's going to be due just to randomness. I mean, some games you're just going to have weird betting patterns without anything to do with it. And if, and, or without any sort of um, malicious intent by anybody involved. And so you're going to have an official or, or a player or something that has more of those suspicious betting patterns than others. You know, it's just like there'll be one umpire or I was going to say one umpire that has, you know, calls more strikes than balls, but that's probably not a very good analogy because that, you know. Well, I, you know, maybe, maybe as our first guest, then we want to have someone that's done this kind of like anomaly fraud detection in games. I, I know of one. Um, I will talk to them and see if they will come on and talk about it because I think it would be very interesting to actually talk to someone who's who's had to do this and has done this um, and compare notes from what you did on Don. And maybe even we do a little bit more research on the whole Donahue thing just from what's publicly been done and, and we can dive into right. that a little bit more because I think that is both, it's a good cross section of an interesting topic um, for sports betters and analytics people um, and with legalization of gambling coming up, that's a sort of an interesting thing to think about. But my big point here, though, Jeff, was was the question, like, what is the cost of being wrong? What is the cost of a false positive? And how much, like, what what sort of the threshold we want to use if we want to make a well, in the case, I mean, in, in the case, argument, of, the, uh, in the case of the Florida shooter, I don't think a false positive, I don't think there's such thing as a false positive, as a bad false positive. If well, someone's mentally ill and is doing things that are potentially destructive to both themselves and other people, we want to get them help, right? That's like, yes. and, and, and again, like to not go into like a lot of specifics of, of this, but mental illness is a big problem in our country and it's not dealt with very well. So I would say right. to you in the case of that, like there isn't a, a cost for false positives because maybe the cost is that we have more people in the mental illness, you know, uh, uh, treatment. Treatment. But, but there's always, 
you have to think of everything as a trade-off though, right? I mean, so there, you're right. You know, it's not going to actually cost us some, you know, we're not, I mean, the cost in a way is kind of good, but it's also at the same time, you're diverting resources that could have been diverted, that could have been utilized by something else than maybe. Yeah, sure. There's always a cost to everything. I get it. But like, I mean, at the end of the day, like, let's just keep bringing it back to sports betting, which is like, what's the cost of a false positive there it's potentially betting on something or not or identifying something incorrectly. Or I was going to say, what happens if you accuse a referee or something of, of match fixing or, you know, with, without, yeah. Who, who is innocent. Okay. Well, I kind of, I kind of think let's of more this. of the court case. Thing. Like, like what, what is our play, standard here? Let's play this out. You or, see or, these patterns for uh, a team of referees and so then as then a, you investigate, right? You, then, you don't yeah, just you investigate. Yeah. You, okay. you spend time investigating. And so maybe this corroborating becomes like a evidence. World. What's that? It's just corroborating evidence. It's not the it's not you can't bring a case against someone just based on the statistical arguments, of course. Right. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, like if you go back to this idea, this is where analytics is like a huge opportunity, right? Because what you want to do is you want to use analytics to create a idea of consistency across the way games are called and the way that games are potentially bet. Um, you can, you can use analytics to figure that out. And then when you see anomalies, you can decide if there's something you want to do with it. If there's anomalies in the betting patterns, you probably as a, as a league or as a, as a government or whomever organization, you want to figure out like why that happened and why it's happening and, and, and see if there's anything there that is present potentially fraudulent or illegal from a league standpoint, you just want games. I think you want games to be called relatively consistently. So people know what to expect. So if you do see an abnormal amount of fouls for a home team or for an underdog or for a, um, you know, like whatever, right? Like it doesn't have to be betting based. It can just be the fact that you want the integrity of your game. That's why this whole like integrity fee, the NBA wants to, shouldn't you be worried about the integrity of your game independent of whether there's legalized sports betting on it? Oh, for sure. And actually, can I tie this back to why I was in what to, ah, blah, 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 tied back to my past. So when yes. I, before I did the LVSC thing, I was actually doing some independent research myself because that's way more interesting than actually doing schoolwork um, about like, I was a big college basketball fan back then, a big Maryland fan and a fan. And, I noticed that overall, it seemed like there were in every game, like the the number of fouls called on on uh, each team were like were really really similar. Like basically, you were not seeing nearly as large of a discrepancy in in foul calls as you should be, as randomness would dictate there would be. And my theory was basically that refs were subconsciously trying to keep the perception of fairness um, alive by calling, you know, an, a I don't want to say an equal number, but but by not allowing there to be a disproportionate number of calls on one team, which in a way, actually, if you think about it, incentivizes fouling. And someone, I think, in the LVSC office told me like that, yeah, that's completely true. That you know the Georgetown, Georgetown, and uh, you know the Patrick Ewing days, and John Tom with John Thompson as the coach would just be fouling every play, but the refs can't call. They're not going to be able to call a foul every single time down the court on a team. It just seems like they're be you know so unfair, right? So the, so the standard changes for each team. It's pretty fascinating. It I is. actually think that's a good note for us to end on. Um, 
you know, Sloan obviously is coming up and maybe we'll have more talk about them. We'll be more prepared. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on Twitter on whether you like this episode and what you'd like to see in future off season episodes. Um, I kind of liked it. I kind of thought it was interesting. Interesting. To I see. thought it was a good conversation. I mean, I, I think as always, I have trouble sometimes staying on a particular topic, but that's, that's <laughs> why we love you, man. That's why we love yeah. you. So we'll talk to you guys again. We're going to try to do this every couple weeks now. Um, hopefully we'll have a guest next time. And again, uh, love feedback on Twitter. Uh, so with that, um, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>